Well, we are uh, now for getting ready for our second session, and we're going to break from Philippians. And over the last two Christmases that we've been together, we've uh, focused on uh, the Christmas story in Luke. We're going to Matthew. And it's always a pleasure to see strangers walking in the back, Jackie. Hello. And Brian, glad to have you. Welcome aboard. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. This morning, as we start our second session, you again have the opportunity of spiritual preparation. So that opportunity, as I always like to say, if someone got your brownie or got the last cookie or... Uh, if Bill stepped on your foot, <laughs> pushing his way to the hot chocolate or something, then this is your opportunity to forgive him <laughs> or have God forgive him <laughs> or forgive you because he didn't, it wasn't intentional on his part, I can guarantee you. It was just a reaction. But this is a time for confession of sins if necessary. It's also a time simply to relax and focus on what is important as far as the Word of God is concerned. So you have just a few seconds for either the use of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and you apply that in the privacy of your own soul. And I think we are all very familiar with this, so let's bow our heads, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the stories that we have about our Lord Jesus Christ's birth. We're thankful that it has been recorded for us, it has been inspired by God the Holy Spirit, and that we have these, this information, Father, at this time. We pray as we study this time in Matthew that we will be able to focus again on the true meaning of Christmas and the true meaning of Christmas, of course, is the gift that you have already given us, and that's salvation. Salvation has been provided. The strategic victory in the human race, in the angelic conflict, and in the human race has been won. It's simply a matter of believing on who and what our Lord Jesus Christ is, what he has accomplished for us on the cross. Salvation is so easy. It's so simple. It's simply a matter of believing, having faith in Christ as our Savior. We're thankful that it's that simple, Father. Help us to keep it simple. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning before I begin, this session before I begin, I have an update. I always like to bring you an update from uh, Houston on Pastor Theme, and this is Christmas 2007 update on Colonel R.B. Theme. And it says, quoting a verse to begin, And this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. And this is one of the ways that they're of them simply thanking us and other churches for continuing to pray, not only for Pastor Theme and his wife Betty, but for those who are caring for them as well. Thank you all who continue to pray for the Colonel. We are grateful for your persistence in prayer on his behalf. 
Your ministry of intercessory prayer is a vital part of the colonel's daily care. September was the first anniversary of the colonel's successful partial hip replacement operation. God used that transitional event as a witness to many to expand the colonel's world and to enhance his quality of life. The colonel continues daily outings throughout his, his neighborhood. The fresh air and sunshine are important. It's important for his well-being and the outdoor activities of the day are good for his visual stimulation. He lives in the moment, so he is provided with as many stimulating experiences as possible. The colonel continues to be able to focus and follow the movement of traffic and the neighborhood dogs as they pass by. His favorite is still Chester, a one-year-old Shih Tzu, who greets him with warm kisses and a wagging tail. While indoors, the colonel continues to watch his Bible classes on DVDs. These classes provide him great pleasure. He is totally focused on and often verbally responsive, and on several occasions he has raised his hand and pointed at the TV. One day he was told, Bob, that's you teaching rebound, 1 John 1, 9. And the colonel immediately responded, yes. Another time he asked, who is that man? And was told, that's you, Bob. That's Bob Theme. And the colonel responded, good. <laughs> the colonel's day is full of meaningful experiences so that his moment-by-moment -moment life is pleasant. He is brought into the kitchen to be part of the conversation while his meal is being prepared. He sits by the, ca the computer screen chatting away as his update is being typed. He is always included and is, and is an important part of whatever is happening. Of course, there is lots of hand-holding and hugs given to him so that he constantly knows how much he's loved and appreciated. He enjoys this so much that he often won't let go. <clears throat> the colonel also enjoys Bobby's dog, BJ. When BJ visits, he scampers about and catches the colonel's eye. When BJ is picked up by someone, the colonel always reaches out to pet him. Last but not least, there's the 12-year-old sweet grandpa cat. Now, I think, I'm not sure if that's his name or if that's just how we refer to him, but it's always referred to as sweet grandpa cat. So here we go. Last but not least, there is 12-year-old sweet grandpa cat that now sleeps on the colonel's lap, on his feet, at the foot of his bed, or purrs alongside of him. This is quite a sight to see, and he is good company for the colonel. One day, he said of sweet grandpa cat, he's a good boy. BJ and sweet grandpa cat are also great company for Betty. She enjoys seeing the birds in the backyard as she sits in the breakfast room for morning and noon meals. She is taken outside on the back patio or on the driveway for fresh air and to enjoy the activities of the day. In, indoors, she watches movies and TV programs and takes cat naps throughout the day. Almost weekly, Betty goes to the hairdresser and then out for lunch. Her mental alertness varies from day to day, but she's content and comfortable and is receiving excellent care. Alzheimer's is reducing the colonel's energy level, depleting some of his abilities, including his salute. And it causes his, his speech to fade a bit. But the colonel has a good appetite and still eats well. He sleeps peacefully throughout the night. His vital signs are good and his skin is constantly monitored and is in excellent condition. Now, I don't know if you know who writes this, but this is probably Katie Tapping. Uh, and every time I see her, she comments on what fine, uh, remarkable skin the colonel has. So here we have a comment from her. His skin is constantly monitored by her, more than likely, and in excellent condition. He is well-groomed, and his overall appearance is remarkable. Alzheimer cannot touch the colonel's soul. God is still in control, and Bible doctrine is still alive and powerful. The colonel expresses his gratitude with thank you and his love of the Lord with dear Heavenly Father. As we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ 
And as the colonel continues his journey, we are comforted to know that his soul holds fast to the Lord. The Lord's right hand upholds him. He dwells in the shelter of the Most High, and he abides in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 63, 8 and 91, 1. The colonel has phenomenal tranquility of soul. And the peace, the tranquility of God, which passes all understanding, will garrison your hearts and minds, your thoughts, in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. So here's one of our our updates that we receive periodically. I think the last one may have been in August. I'm not sure. But we have our passage in Matthew. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew, Matthew's gospel focuses on the messianic message of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we would call a very Jewish book. We can see that when we, with the first verse, I'm, we're going to be in Matthew 2, but let's go back to Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew 1.1 shows us that we are now focused on the lineage and the heritage of Jesus as it applies to the son of David, his royalty, and the son of Abraham, the fact that he, has the, he comes from that patriotic, patriarchal family. But we're going to be in Matthew 2, verse 1. I'm going to read our section in which we find ourselves this morning all the way down to chapter... Or down to, uh, uh, verse 12. So Matthew 2, 1 through 12, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. That first paragraph is probably where we're going to find ourselves most of this, uh, this message. And it's just loaded with information. Unfortunately, even though there's much information there, we often get it wrong. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard, he was troubled. Here we have a troubled monarch. Not unusual for Herod, he was troubled throughout his reign. And all Jerusalem with him. See, when when. Herod was troubled, everybody was troubled. No one knew whose head was going to fall next. And when, he, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So what we have is these wise men appear, and they are looking for this child who has been born, and he's king of the Jews. And as I said, that gets Herod's attention very quickly. And, of course, as I said, it would get everybody else's attention, too. Verse 5. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's interesting that when Herod asks his high priests and scribes, well, where is this king to be born? They immediately knew. They knew where the Christ child was to be born. It doesn't say, of course, that may take them a little while. We don't know, but it doesn't say that it did. It simply says that they responded by saying Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. And they even have the scripture. And, of course, as scribes, you would expect that. Verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, so he calls them in to talk to them, de determined from them what time the star appeared. See, there's nothing lost on him. He wants to know at the time the star appeared because he knows who they are. Well, and that's going to be the majority of our subject. Who are these wise men? And why are they here? How did they get here? Well, Herod knows who they are. 
He knows from whence they came. And he knows how long it took them to come. So he wants to determine the date of the birth. Because he has some dastardly deeds that he needs to put into execution. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. Well, that's the last thing that Herod plans to do with this Christ child, is to worship him. 9. When they heard the king, they departed. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. So they follow the star and they follow it really as far as the area of Jerusalem. And it appears that that's where it takes them. But they don't know about the prophecy of Bethlehem. So how did they get to Israel? Well, they followed the star, that's true. But they knew to follow the star. But then the star moves again and takes them down to Bethlehem. And I'm trying to emphasize also the movement of this star. Strangest star that we've ever encountered. Ten. When they saw the star, in other words, when they saw what the star was presenting to them, that it had stopped, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They, we're home, we're here. Our journey is now ended, at least the one going in the one direction, one leg of it. Verse 11, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Did a little bit of reading on gold, frankincense, and myrrh this week, um, and I wish we had the time to, to study that. We might pick that up at another time. Verse 12, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their country another way. And so here we have Matthew's account of the wise men from the east. And by the way, this is the only account that we have. So there may be some of you who say, I recognize some details that are missing from this account. I wonder where we get those details. Well, I wonder too. The fact is that there is details here, but we need to sort them out. So we're back in Matthew 2, 1, the first verse. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So they have come to Jerusalem. And the first thing I'd like to notice is that, again, they come to Jerusalem, and we'll pick this up a little bit later. But they seem to have the information that will bring them to Jerusalem. But they don't seem to have the information that will lead them to Bethlehem. We've got several items in these verses that really honestly need some attention. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to pay some attention to these items from a historical perspective so that we can have a more accurate understanding of what is happening. First of all, the second word here, and after Jesus was born... We have an aorist participle, and that means not much to some of us, but to others it tells us that the after here indicates that the occurrence, and of course the word after, tells us that the occurrence of this verse happened sometime after the birth of Jesus. So we are no longer, look, no longer observing in Matthew 2 the birth. It's sometime after the birth. If the grammar doesn't lead us in that direction, we also know this for several contextual reasons here in Matthew 2. First of all, we saw in verse 11 that Joseph and Mary are by now in a house. They're no longer near a manger. They're no longer, as some might say, in a stable. That's where they were. Um, 
Can't prove that they were necessarily in a stable. Remember, we've looked at that, and it was a place. But Joseph and Mary are now living in a house, and that's in verse 11. Secondly, Jesus is called a child. He's no longer called an infant. He's called a child. Now, could be called still an infant, and it, it could cover a small child. But I think it, uh, we see the word child here instead of infant, baby. Third, we would see, if we read to verse 16, that Herod plans to murder all the male children two years and under. So this would be our third point. Herod, in his attempt to find out when the star appeared, is trying to determine the birth. And because of the distance and the time that he determined when he intently talked with the Magi, we'll learn that that's their name, the wise men, he determines that they could be, could be almost two years old, a year and a half to maybe two years old. So that tells us that that possibly is how long it's been since the birth of our Lord. So Herod, in verse 16, will murder all the male children two years old and under. And then fourth, and we don't learn this from our context, but we learn this from Luke 2.24, Joseph and Mary will offer a sacrifice at the birth of, our, of the Lord that is designed for the poor. They'll offer two turtle doves or two pigeons, depending upon how you translate it. So, Joseph and Mary offer a sacrifice that's designed for the poor, two turtle doves. Instead of something more substantial, which they probably could have done, had these wise men arrived and presented them with their very expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, we know that this is sometime after the birth. Now, the description wise men, the description wise men, see if I can pull this off here. The word for wise men is the Greek word Majos, Majos, Majos. M, put another M there. It's hard to grip without pushing that spot that I don't want to push. A, G, O, S. Looks like I'm going downhill here. Majos, from which we get our transliteration, and it's properly translated, can be translated wise men, and that's fine, but we get the transliteration Hmm. I don't know where that's going. Same thing here. Well, let's get it right. Magi. I don't know where that's down there. I'm going to work on this. Magi. All right. The word has Persian origin and, again, has traditionally been translated, uh, wise men, or transliterated magi. But it really needs much more work for us to understand truly who these people were. Now, what I'm going to do is give you a little bit of a story here about the magi, about their history. Some of it you'll be able to write down. I promise to go slow enough. And some of it you may just want to uh, record in your mind. The story of the wise men, first of all, just sort of a little bit of an opening about them. The story of the wise men <clears throat> The story of the wise men bringing gifts to the baby Jesus is one of probably one of the most well known, well and more often taught stories. But it's also one of the more distorted stories of the Bible. Many of us have certainly are familiar with some of the traditions behind this event. 
Now, what's been said? Well, first of all, three wise men. Did anybody see three there? No, I didn't see three. Three kings. Did any of us see three kings? I was checking with uh, uh, Hal and Janet to see if we were going to be singing We Three Kings of Orient Are. Didn't want to ruin that song for us. Uh, Portions of the song are very good, but We Three Kings of the Orient makes three mistakes before we even get to the song. So, there's not three kings. Some say that these three kings were representing the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And I don't know, uh, sometimes as I read these things, it's not something I necessarily had heard, but that's uh, one of the traditions. One was supposedly Ethiopian, one was Oriental, and one was Caucasian. Uh, even, they were even given names. One was called Kaspar, one was Melchor, and the other one was Balthasar. And it says that, and the tradition, of course, says that it followed, they followed a star, which was the result of the co-joining of Saturn and Jupiter. So the, co- the co-joining of Saturn and Jupiter, and they followed this vision in the sky to the manger in Bethlehem and arrived just after the shepherds to worship the king. Well, that's not what happened. You know, very often, and I realize that our manger scenes uh, take a little bit of license because they're a setting and it's still and we need to bring it all together at once. But somehow, you know, if we went over to Luke, we'd probably also find that there's, you know, the, uh, the ox and the donkey and the sheep aren't there really keeping time with the drummer boy. (laughs) They may have been there, it's just not in the story, that's all. The problem is, is that we don't have those events, we don't have those facts in our text. We don't know how many there were. We simply don't know how many there were. We don't know their names. If they came from the same region, and we know they did, why? Because they are called the Magi, and we will talk about the Magi here in a minute. Then they're all of the same ethnic origin, if they are Magi. Some would say, well, couldn't they maybe have been a mixture? Not if they're Magi. They didn't follow a real star. Now, the text tells us it's a star, so we use the term star, but they didn't follow a real, real star because there's no star that acts the way this star acted. They did finally come to Bethlehem to worship, worship Jesus, but they didn't come to the manger and they never saw the shepherds as near as we know. They came to a house. Now, is that a real problem? Well, it's only a problem when we become so fixated on the surroundings. When we become so fixated on the surroundings, the actors and the setting of the stage, that we get our eyes off the real importance of the events. And that's very often what happens. We have songs that surround ourselves with a lot of these other exterior things. And for some reason, we begin to lose our focus on the gift, the birth of the unique person of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're very often better to stick with the facts. So who were, in fact, these wise men? And how do they fit into the story of Jesus' birth? And I'm going to take a little bit of time to answer that question and try to bring out the importance, and we'll focus on that at the end. Because what we will see with the Magi, in this very Jewish book of Matthew, that we have Gentiles playing a very prominent role. Why is that? First of all, historians. Herodias, the ancient Greek historian, described the Magi as a priestly caste among the 6th century Medes. Herodotus is his name. Therefore, the term Magi designates an old and a powerful priestly caste. This is an old and powerful priestly caste, and we'll see how they've developed. In general, the Magi were specialists, and they became specialists really in science. Back then, it was the science of medicine, the science of astronomy, mathematics, and other areas. The first reference to the Magi occurs in the 7th century B.C. 
Now, some think they were Semites, which relates them to Abraham and the Arabs, but we don't really have anything to confirm that. But as the years went by, the Magi tribe it became, it was a caste, it was a sect, the tri- Magi tribe became known for their mastery of astrology, which also included at that time, of course, astronomy and mathematics. So they worked in the sciences that they knew, and we know that they were very good at what they did. They were the scientists of their day, as well as later on, because they were considered very wise, they were fortune tellers, soothsayers, and became religious masters. But they lived, of course, in the area of the Medes and the Persians. And by the way, from the word magi, we get the words magic and uh, magician. Well, by the time of the prophet Daniel, need to work our way through Daniel here, which was in the 6th century B.C., a special caste of these astrologers and astronomers, uh, astronomers were formed in the region of Chaldea. So there were a special tribe or a special caste of them in the area of Chaldea, so much so that they were referred to as Chaldeans. So as we read, as a matter of fact, in Daniel 2, in Daniel 2, 2, I can just read this to you, just this one uh, verse. We see, Then the king gave the command to call the the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So there actually is a separate group because the Babylonians had their own uh, wise men that they considered to be very good at what they did. However, we find out from Daniel that they were not uh, very proficient. But the Chaldeans became a separate part. About this time in history, the Medes allied themselves with the Persians to defeat the Babylonians. And when Babylon fell to the Persians in 538 B.C., the various disciplines of the Babylonian wise men were incorporated into the Persian sciences. So they just brought them together. And that's what we see when we get to Daniel 2.2. They're all brought together. Wise men from Persia were credited, though, with possessing higher religious and intellectual skills than any other, quote-unquote, wise men in the ancient world. And again, while the Babylonians were looked upon as having certain wise men, what we see is that very often they were simply charlatans. They were imposters. The Magi Persians, the Persians, these Magi, gradually acquired influence. One of them, and you may or may not recognize his name, Zoroaster, Zoroaster, belonged to this sect, and under Darius the Great, his teaching was given state sanction, so that later on we have a religious uh, sect, a religious belief called Zoroastrianism. Sometimes their power was too great, and they had to be pushed back into line. As a matter of fact, that was the case. Why? Because they became almost kingmakers with their wisdom. As the centuries went by, the Magi, this priestly caste, consolidated their power, and they became advisors to the kings and the most powerful group of counselors in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which were referred to by Daniel and also Esther, was based on their work. Now, Daniel's God-given ability to interpret dreams and visions during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and his high place in the Persian Empire, brought him into close contact with these men. So we have the Magi, and we also have Daniel, who can do what they just want everybody to believe that they can do. Although these were very wise individuals who could uh, make certain prediction statements regarding uh, from science and from medicine. 
the things that they had studied. And we need to remember that it was in this latter stage of Daniel's life that he was, that he was given a vision relating to the 70 weeks. And we studied this over in Daniel 9. The 70 weeks, or we could call them the 70 periods of weeks, which gave a chronological plan for the coming of the Messiah. And we've studied that in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. We have a chronological plan for the coming of the Messiah. And it's more than likely that Daniel not only impressed the Magi with who he was and his abilities, but he also witnessed to them. And there's a very good chance that many of them believed. And so we would have a group of Magi, possibly a small group, that became believers. And so as Daniel has this dream, interprets this dream, understands it to provide a, chronolo- a chronology for the life of the Messiah and for a, really a history of Israel, they would remember it. And they would look forward to this time of the Messiah as it approached. During the following centuries, many of the Magi roamed far from Persia to to use their skills and knowledge in other nations. And by the time of Herod, the Magi were one of the most powerful presence in the Middle East. So they were aware of them. They were the secret inner council of kings and in Persia and other areas, very often, no one came to power without them having a hand in that rise. So they became known, in some cases, as kingmakers. Now, it was during this time, during Herod's reign, and Herod reigns from approximately 40 B.C. to around 4 B.C., it was during this time that the Parthians, the Persians, move in to the land of Israel and actually push uh, Herod out of his uh, out of Jerusalem. He flees to Egypt. He goes to Rome. Uh, he has a good relationship with Rome, so Rome sends an army and they push the Persians back out. However, the Persians and another, another sect of them will often call the, the Parthians continue to be a threat to invade. And Herod was constantly vigilant for a conspiracy from the east. So you can imagine when one day these Magi that come from Persia, the Parthian area, when they show up and say, we are looking for the king of the Jews who was just recently born, Herod, who is paranoid anyhow, now is truly fit to be tied. And he is anxious to find who this uh, child is and where it is. So they show up, and what are they doing? They're following this star. Let me pause just a moment to talk about the star. How did the Magi know to associate the star with the birth of our Lord? Well, if they were believers, then they knew prophecy. And first of all, they had at least three Jewish sources. Two that they knew of, one they probably didn't know. The first Jewish source that helped the Magi discern the time and the place of his birth uh, was in Numbers 24.17. In Numbers 24:17, we see the prophecy of Balaam. We've studied Balaam in our Wednesday night study of Joshua. But Balaam, in Numbers 24, gives a prophecy. He's trying to curse Israel, but God will not allow him to do that. Instead, in Numbers 24... Verse 15, he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Baor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Now, Balaam 
has fallen down several times, been knocked down. But he says in verse 17, I see him, but not now. So we have a prophecy of someone, something, some person, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter, a ruler, shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Well, they, they would have known of this prophecy. They would have known this. If they are believers and they're studying the scripture, as Daniel had been studying it, because Daniel, we're told, studied it very closely. So this first source, first, first source would come out of Numbers 24:17. Now, it's the star that we see. And what do we see in this star? Well, unknown to the Magi, this was a very unusual star. They read star, but it was an unusual star. And it has been suggested by some, first of all, that this star was, as I said before, an alignment of the planets Saturn and Jupiter. You know, they aligned themselves and we have this bright star. We've also been told that it was possibly a comet. Been told it could be a meteor, or that maybe it was a supernova, an exploding star. But none of these will fit the situation. What we see, though, is that there is a bright, shining light that is guiding these wise men. And this is what we're going to call the glory of God. And we've seen the glory of God described in the Hebrew as Shekinah. And I believe that that's precisely what we have here. At the birth of our Lord, God chose to use astronomy. He chose to use the very subject that these wise men were studying so intently. He chose to use astronomy to direct these wise men to the place where the Messiah could be found. And he chose a method uh, that would occupy their times. <clears throat> we see in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the firmament, firmament shows his handiwork. And so this is God revealing who he is, revealing his glory. We saw in the Old Testament... The Shekinah glory, it wasn't called the Shekinah glory at the time, but in retrospect, that's what we call it, because the Shekinah glory became a word used during the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. But we now look back on it and call the Shekinah glory, <clears throat> it was a brilliant, radiant light of the glory of God. That's what we have in the Shekinah glory. It was the fire in the burning bush. It guided the children of Israel in the wilderness by a pillar by, of cloud by day and fire by night. So we see it presenting itself to Moses and also to the children of Israel. It hovered over the tabernacle and was reflected in the face, the face of Moses, which glowed from him being in the presence of God. Jesus' face shone like the sun when transfigured on the mount. This was his glory finally shining through. And in the New Jerusalem, we're told in Revelation 21:23, there's not going to be any sun or moon or any light bodies. We're not going to need any because the glory of God will illuminate the New Jerusalem. So this is what we see in this star. The star was, in fact, the manifestation of the Shekinah glory. And it also, by identifying it as the Shekinah glory, seeing its previous manifestations in the cloud that moved, the cloud that hovered over the tabernacle, that could move in front of the Israelites, that helps us with this movement in Matthew 2, 9. So in Matthew 2, verse 9, we see that when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. So now this star in Matthew 2, 9 simply moves in front of them. This is like, you know, no star we would have ever anticipated. Now, regardless of whether the events con uh, constituted a comet, a supernova, or a conjunction of planets, when they left Jerusalem, this star appears again and it moves in front of them. 
and it stops. Then it stops over the place where they're going. The distance is about six miles. And it moved in a direction, if we think of Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is and then Bethlehem, it moves in a north-southerly, from a north to a southerly direction. And there are no stars, there are no heavenly bodies that move in a north-south direction. With the rotation of the earth, they simply don't move that way. They're going to move in a different direction. They move east to west. The scripture goes on to say that the star led them to a specific house and stopped. And again, no natural object in the sky follows this pattern. Finally, the star appears to have been visible only to the Magi. You know, certainly there had to be other astronomers who were watching the sky. Certainly, if they were following this star, then the scribes and the Pharisees or even Saul or Herod could have followed this star. But apparently it's only visible to them. So the star of Bethlehem cannot be explained by science. This was supernatural guidance, and this is simply one of the many supernatural, miraculous, we could say, interventions. And, of course, by far the most supernatural is going to be the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, the Gentile Magi, as we notice, did a better job of interpreting the prophecy of Numbers 24:17 than the Jewish leaders did. And I think it's even astounding that, because we might say, well, maybe they weren't anticipating the star. Well, that's not true, because later on, the religious leaders will identify in the year 137-135 A.D. a Jewish rebel who revolts against Rome, and they will call him the star, they'll call him the son of the star, Bar Kokhba, Bar Kokhba, the son of the star. They thought he was the Messiah, because you see, they wanted Jesus, the Messiah, to revolt against Rome, to provide them freedom. He was not here to do that. He was here to provide salvation. But, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees had their hopes dashed when the, this Messiah, Bar Kokhba, was captured and many of them along with him tortured and executed. Now the second source of information available to the Magi was the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So they had this prophecy. They not only had Numbers 24, but they have Daniel 9. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Without doubt, Daniel had been an extremely impressive young man and old man. So impressive that he was put in charge of the empire, only second only behind the king, as near as we know. And so his abilities and his skills are very well known. And those who would have revered him, followed in his footsteps, even believed in the Lord, believed in God, put their faith in God, would have known of Daniel's a prophecy. And so they would have known of Daniel's prophecy, which provided a timetable for the Messiah's arrival. Now, supplied with an understanding of the wonders of God and relying by faith on Jewish prophecies, they eventually found Jesus. And at the time that they found him, he was more than two years, probably in the vicinity of two years old, or at least that's what we believe who was, again, no more than two years old, somewhat less than that. Still, with the revelations available to them, there was no specific mention of where in Judah the king was to be born. So they go to Jerusalem. They figure they'll go to the capital, and there they would find the king. What they probably didn't have is the information that the scribes did, which was in Micah 2.5. And in Micah 2.5... The last book of the Old Testament canon, the scribes had this available to them, which the Magi did not have. Micah 2.5. Excuse me, not... 
I'm in Malachi. We're not in Malachi. We're in Micah. That would be a little bit better. As uh, Dr. Edgar always tells me, if you're going to read a passage of Scripture, it's better to be in the right book. Let's see. My text here... Five two, thank you. Good for you, Irene. My computer often gets it wrong. Micah five two says, "But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are of old from everlasting." And so here we see, yeah, Micah 5, 2, that it would be Bethlehem where he would be born. Now, Herod relates this information to the Magi because the Magi don't hear this information. Herod gets it from his scribes and Pharisees who very quickly give him this information. But of course, do we see an interest? Here we have Gentiles who have come to Jerusalem, traveled a great distance, and said, we're looking for the king of the Jews, who we have been told has been born here. And how do they know that? Well, they have the same information that the scribes in Israel have, only Israel has even more information. Those scribes in Israel have more information. They know it's Bethlehem. But do we see any excitement amongst these scribes? None. We see a lot of excitement with Herod, but none with these scribes. So, what they get from Herod, that it's Bethlehem, is probably the first time the Magi have heard this prophecy. Now, what's so important about getting the grasp of these details? Well, it puts us, first of all, in the historical setting to understand what we have. And first of all, it should help remove some of the clutter regarding the wise men. We have a lot of clutter, you know, that really fouls up our radar screen, so to speak. We have a lot of clutter regarding the wise men. And let's not get wrapped up in what we don't know. And we have so much that's always attached to the Bible that's really not there. But it becomes tradition, and it becomes something that we now apply to our time here at Christmas. But secondly, it should also help us to realize that the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ was prophesied and it was expected from the very beginning of the Word of God. Moses writes the book of Numbers. He writes the Torah. And so from the very beginning, we have the unique person of the universe prophesied. Now, I haven't talked about Genesis 3.15, which we believe is the first mention of a Savior, a Deliverer. But we do have it in Numbers 24. And this is, without doubt, what the Magi followed. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the most anticipated person in all human history. And these wise men, these Magi, who were seemingly completely disconnected from Israel, they're not Jews, they're completely disconnected with Israel. They were watching for him, and they traveled across, really, probably most of their known world. They traveled across most of their known world for many months to worship him. So that third, these nobles, these wise men, as they're being called, represent the first Gentiles to worship the Jewish king. These are Gentiles, and they travel, again, most of the, the known world to worship who? A Jewish king. He must have been more than just a Jewish king. They must have known who this was. Their actions symbolize the universal gospel outreach. That not only Israel can be redeemed, not only as a Jew can you be saved, we would say, but also that the nations shall come to thy light. 
And that's Isaiah 60, verse 3. The nations shall come to thy light. A very interesting prophecy, and it's, of course, during the millennium. But this is a prophecy of the Messiah, who will be the king in the millennium. And, of course, what we have here is a repetition, and I don't need to repeat it, but I will, that wise men still seek him. It's very relevant. Relevant. Very relevant. We not only must seek him, but we must seek the knowledge of his word that continues to be our daily light. And that's what we see in these wise men, the Magi. Finally, there's something quite astonishing in the contrast, as I said, between the Magi and the chief priests in Herod's court. Quite a contrast. We probably should wonder why these foreigners, all the way from present-day Persia, why they're asking about a Jewish king. And for some reason, those who have the information are not at all captivated by it. Not at all. Not a bit. Even after they know or they hear, they're not willing to walk the six miles to see if this is true. It would not have been difficult to figure out that Herod's diligent inquiry to determine the earliest appearance of the Magi, the start of the Magi, and thereby estimate the time of the child's birth, was so that he could go down to execute him, to eradicate this threat. He would have killed the newborn king. Still, the religious leaders did nothing to protect their long-awaited Messiah. Their indifference to the, the things of God was already present before Christ comes to his ministry, and they hate him. And so what we see in this sort of microcosm of people, Herod, the religious leaders, and the Magi, is probably what we see today, the three responses to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the message. We see, first of all, acceptance by the Magi, by these Gentiles who seem to have the least to gain. We also see hostile rejection by Herod, the political leadership. And then thirdly, we simply see the, the uh, religious leaders ignoring the truth of what's available to them. And I think we see that today. We see those same responses today. We see the hostile response of governmental leadership today. It's really very hostile towards Christianity. We see that, vast, that, that the vast religious world, for the most part, simply ignores who the Lord Jesus Christ is because they're more comfortable in their religious traditions and their, and their impressions of who they are and what they've they've developed or what they've built themselves. And they simply willfully ignore the truth. And finally, our Lord is accepted by those who truly seek him. Those, here we have the Magi who were noble and very intelligent, but he's also accepted by those who are lowly. And we saw that you know, in our passage today but those who are humble and lowly and those who truly seek him and realize that they need a Savior who can provide them a way to God, their creator. And I think that is one of the points of this story, is that the wise men, no relationship to this king of the Jews, but they were seeking him because they had been anxiously awaiting him. And for us, at the time of the celebration of his birth, we need to have the same attitude. We need not only to seek the information about him, we not only need to follow that information, but we need to anxiously await his return. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have the truth of the word of God before us and that we have indisputable information.
that your son has paid the price for our sins. And we know that we are sinners. And we know that we have failed. And we know that there is absolutely no way, no way to you. The path is not found in our own actions, our own deeds, anything that we can do. But it's found in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're thankful in Scripture in Matthew 2 that we have indisputable fact that our Lord Jesus Christ came as a human, perfect humanity, but yet he was also undiminished deity. He provided our salvation. The guilt of our sins has been paid. And it's simply a matter of believing on his finished work on the cross. We're thankful that it's this simple. And at Christmas, Father, we're thankful for this gift. We're thankful for your great gift, the gift of our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.